Good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day to all our mothers. Um, I hope that today will be quite a momentous day for all of you. And so <clears throat> I think um, every Mother's Day we are to think about our moms and realize that we wouldn't be where we are without them and to thank them, to honor them. And my wife would also say, this Mother's Day better be good for her. And I said, you're not my mother. And then that didn't go over so well. Uh, I think I'm going to write a book, um, What Not to Say. I don't know how that's going to go through, but uh, I do hope that you will have a wonderful Mother's Day with all your mothers and to honor them and remember, uh, remember them as they are God's gift to you. Before we go into the momentousness of Melchizedek now, let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, and aid your servant in bringing forth the word of God, that he may glorify you, and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. We've been going over the book of Hebrews together as a church, and we are on chapter 7, and we'll go over just the ten, first 10 verses of this chapter. And you can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 944. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham." But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. <clears throat> in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> uh, 
we come upon this passage, and you might be thinking, uh, who's that? Who's Melchizedek? What is his significance? Why should I care, other than the fact that Pastor Eugene, if he had a son, really wanted to name him Melchizedek? Well, what is his significance? And we build up to chapter 7. But you remember in chapters before, we learn that Jesus Christ is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he doesn't go on to explain who Melchizedek is right away. In fact, he takes an entire chapter to, do, to give us two passages before this passage. So as he introduced Melchizedek, meaning Jesus Christ is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, it's so important that you understand this that I'm going to take two passages, a break, to explain to you not only why you need to be ready for this, but a warning against those who will not understand. And that's the two passages in between that portion where Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and this passage where Melchizedek is actually finally mentioned. And the two passages we talked about. And number one was the warning against immaturity. You only drink milk when you know that you need solid food. And this is where we think that we know Christianity. We know the faith because we went to church a few times or we grew up there. But you only drank milk. Did you mature in the faith? That's what the author was challenging his readers. Otherwise, where are you in life? C.S. Lewis was right this in The Weight of Glory, first given as a speech. It would seem that our Lord, and I'm quoting from him, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So here we are, if you understand that the riches and the glory of God awaits Christians, why are we then fooling around with mud pies when there is a feast waiting for us, is what he's saying. Uh, last year, not this past year, but last year, we went to Orlando, Florida for a conference, and we had a day like break that we could do anything we wanted to. We had a free day. And so we decided to go to Disney World. And um, Disney World, we would go in, and then we realized we went too late. So even the uh, person in the ticket box would say, it's not really worth it for you to get in. It's like a dollar. No, I'm sorry, it's like an hour plus to get on a ride, and there's about an hour left before the ride's closed, so there's no point. And so what we decided to do was we decided to go, we were still there, but on the outskirts of Disney World, and we went to the shopping area. I don't know if you've been to Disney World, but they have the shopping area. None of us that came back said we went to Disney World. None of us. Does that count? Did we go inside? Have you gone to Disney? If you don't go inside the actual park and go shopping, 
I did buy some M&Ms, but is that, does that qualify? We see the gate, and it says, Welcome to Disney World, where dreams come true. And you hang around at the gate, and like, I know Disney World. I'm good. And then you go back, and you tell people, I've been to Disney World. How many of us would be like, liar? <laughs> I don't think so. But a lot of us, we think that we know the depths and the riches of the Christian faith when we've only been at the gate. And that's what the author is warning about. And that's the warning that we receive. And the second passage that we went over last week is the heirs of the promise. And what was in the heirs of the promise? It was to understand that a blessing that God dictates is a blessing. A curse that God dictates is a curse. What God says is a sin is a sin. Otherwise, what are you repenting of? How do you know that you're truly being blessed when you don't even know what a blessing is? There's a famous novel written by Lewis Carroll that many of you might be familiar with. Even if you haven't read it, it's made its way into our everyday vernacular, casual conversation, other modern works. We have characters like Tweedledee and Tweedledum, the Mad Hatter, the Cheshire Cat, the Red Queen, the White Rabbit. All these characters were from this one author's book, work. And it's Lewis Carroll. Uh, what many of you may not know is Lewis Carroll was actually an Anglican deacon in the Victorian era when he wrote this book. But there's this section where Alice is now going and there's a fork in the road. She doesn't know exactly where to go. And then she, she sees Cheshire Cat, the cat, and asks the cat, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? The cat would respond, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And then she would say, I don't care. I don't very much care where. And then the cat would respond, then it doesn't matter where you go or which way you go. And that's the point, isn't it? If you don't know what's right or what's wrong, if you can't tell what's a sin, what's a blessing, or what's a curse, where are you going? You don't even know. So what's the point in getting upset or passionate or energized or ambitious of going anywhere when you don't know where to go? Eventually, if you, as you continue to read, Alice in exasperation would just respond, so long as I get somewhere, I just want to get somewhere. And the cat would say, oh, you're sure to do that if you just walk long enough. So the passage that we went over yesterday is, if you want to understand the importance of being heirs of the promise, heirs of the divine promise, you need to know what's left and right, what's right and wrong, what is sin and what is a blessing. And both of these passages would lay a groundwork for this passage. I don't know if you felt it, but when you read this passage, you might have been like, What? But there is a momentousness, an importance, a heavy importance of Melchizedek in the author's explanation of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what we want to get to. And so if you do understand that, let us move forward. And I have three basic points for us. I'll be moving through the second and third points pretty quickly. 
the first point I just want to hang on, I believe and I hope for our congregation's sake. And the three points are the importance of the past, the importance of the tithe, and the importance of the Levites. The importance of the past, tithe, and Levites, a.k.a. leading to the importance or the momentousness of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. This section right here is the largest portion of the Bible dealing with Melchizedek. He is first mentioned in Genesis 14 and then mentioned in Psalm 110. That's it. He has maybe a total of four verses where he's mentioned in the entire Bible. And yet here... We have this entire chapter, the largest portion of the Bible, dealing with Melchizedek. Why should we care about Melchizedek? And that's where we get to our first point. The past is important. The past is our reference point. It's where you stand on. We find that a lot of contemporary culture today is desperately trying to erase history, but history is important too. Just like if I asked you what was the importance of the historical figure, Abraham Lincoln, many of you may know because you learned it in school. But history and Abraham Lincoln in his addresses wasn't simply what we would think political. It was also philosophical, theological. They're all intertwined. They're not separated. So when there was a repeal of the Missouri Compromise, just really quickly, it was set 40 years before this, what, this um, the debates, the Lincoln-Douglas Lincoln debates, but it was in a certain uh, latitude and above, you couldn't have slaves, and below, you could, but then there was some annexation or a taking over of some property, so people were wondering, can I still have slaves? And so there was another politician who would argue in the Lincoln-Douglas debates that each state should be free to decide for themselves whether to have slaves or not. And then Lincoln would, all, would argue on the other side, Actually, not true. And I'm going to give you a quote from the address on the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, which he gave in Illinois in 1854. Now, after I said all this, I hope this all makes sense. It's not just merely political. I believe, again, I'll, I'll say this over and over again in our church. People who say that don't know what politics is. They don't know what philosophy is. And they don't know theology. You can't separate these things. They are who you are. This is how we are to debate, argue ideas, come up with the best ones. And this is what he said. Slavery is founded on the selfishness of man's nature, opposition to it on its love of justice. These principles are in eternal antagonism. And when brought into collision so fiercely as slavery extension brings them, Shocks and throes and convulsions must ceaselessly follow. And this is what he wrote. He was against slavery, obviously. 
And you need to understand that about history. We have a history. The reason why there were slaves all throughout world, the world's history and why all of a sudden in this modern era it was stopped is because we brought in theology, philosophy. We knew that there was something eternal about the dignity of humans. And so tradition is important. History is important. A lot of us are getting married. Marriage is a tradition in our ceremony. We extend and express tradition. There is a reason why when you get married, the groom's side is on one side and the bride's side is on one side because two parties are coming together to make a covenant and they walk down the aisle. There's a reason why there's an aisle where there's two opposing sides because the two opposing sides are now making covenant with each other saying, if I do not follow in the covenant that I make with you, then may I be split apart like the sacrifices that were made back then when they made a covenant. They would split the animal carcasses in half and there would be an aisle of blood and that's what you would walk through. That's how seriously people took covenants. So even today, in 2023, there is this tradition that is being held because it came from somewhere. There is meaning behind it because it matters where you came from. Why does it matter where you came from? Because it shows you where you are going. If you try to erase where, you, where you're from or history or whatever you want to call it or redefine it, then what are you standing on? You're standing on either nothing or something that is not reality. And then where are you going? You're going either nowhere or another place that is not reality. Your mothers bore you. You are 100% of your mom. 100%. You're also 100% of your dad, but we'll wait for that on Father's Day. But you are 100% of your mom. You have 100% of her chromosomes. And so when you are also you, you are not independent. But your mother also had a mother, and her mother before that. We all come from somewhere because there's a destination that we are going. It's really important that you know this. I'm giving a lot of examples because I really want to show the importance of knowing your past and also understanding history. But also where you are going points to what you long for. What are you longing for? What do you really want in life? I mentioned Disney before, and they came out in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal had an article on May 11th, just a few days ago. And it was about the Golden Oak community. And the Golden Oak community is the only residential area in Disney World. And uh, they interviewed a few people. They interviewed like Janice Scaramucci, who's in quote, bedroom is decorated with paintings of Disney castles in her office. A recessed ceiling in the shape of a Mickey Mouse head is painted in black glitter. The feet of her dining room table are made from coffee mugs featuring Mickey and Winnie the Pooh. And her closet hangs a series of colorful Disney outfits, including a red skirt, <clears throat> apply with characters from the movie Ratatouille. And um, that house that she bought for just a few million dollars 
now is currently listed at $19 million. And people are like, wow, that's a lot of money to live in a house uh, with just Mickey Mouse paraphernalia. And the real, the real, in this article, the real estate agent has something pretty poignant to say. And this is what he said. I don't want to say it's like delayed adulthood, but it's like another version of the fountain of youth. I don't want to say it's like delayed adulthood, but it's like another version of the fountain of youth. When people are either looking back, they're looking back because they have nostalgia. Why do you even want to go to Disney World? Because it brings you back. For better or for worse, perhaps, but it brings you back. Why do you want to go back? Because you want to go to maybe simpler times, happier times, times where you remember joy, right? But it also points to the forward. And that's the question I'm asking. What are you really longing for? What do you really want? And it has everything to do with the past. It has everything to do with where you're from. Don't just go back one generation. Keep on going back and back and back. And there is this person in the Bible called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is far back enough to take, so for this writer to take a pause and important enough for us to dwell on. And so the question is why? Who is Melchizedek? And so the first one and a half verses I read was just a history, was just what happened in Genesis 14. And really quickly, what happened in Genesis 14 were there was a battle or a war that went on between four kings in the area and five kings in the area. They got together and they waged war. Back then, a king isn't like a king of an empire now. When they meant king, it's more like a town mayor or a governor. They would be king over a few thousand people. And so these kings would come together and they would wage war on the other side of other kings. And if they would win whoever the victor was, to the victor go the spoils, right? And so... The four kings waged war against the five kings, and guess what? The five kings lost. They lost. And of the five kings, there were two kings that's notable, and those two kings are the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And it's notable because Abram's nephew, Lot, was there. And so he was captured. His wife was captured, and his children were captured. And so when Abram heard about this, he took 318 men, it says in Genesis 14, and he went, 318 men, and he went after those kings, and he demolished them. He destroyed them. He took back every single possession that was taken, including women and people, it says. And this is where it gets important. Not just that Abraham demolished them, but when he got back, this is where we see that the king of Sodom went, and Melchizedek went. The king of Sodom would say, you know what? Because you did this, we're so grateful. I want you to have everything that you took. Just give us back the women and the people. Just give us back the women and children, slaves, whoever it is. Just give us back the people. You could take all the booty, all the loot. And Abraham would say, I'm not going to take anything from you. 
You could take back everything. I don't want anything from you because I got what I got from God. And I don't need you to give me anything. However, when Melchizedek goes to him, he brings out bread and wine. He blesses Abraham by the Most High God. And then Abraham gives him, Melchizedek, a tithe. And that's important. But that's it. That's the end of the story about Melchizedek. And he doesn't appear again until Psalm 110. When David writes his psalm, he's probably thinking, is that Melchizedek? Not bad. And he wrote that in there. And there's one verse in Psalm 110 where it says, Melchizedek. And so this author now is going to exegete. He's going to unpack what was in just four verses in the entire Old Testament and what it meant and the significance, the importance of Melchizedek. And that's why he's painstakingly going to do this. I'm going to do this in two weeks, but he does it in one chapter. He painstakingly does this, but before that, that's why he gave such a precursor because it's so important that our hearts, minds, and souls are ready to receive it. Otherwise, who cares? Melchizedek. How do you even pronounce that? Melchai? But that's how it goes. And so he starts to exegete. He starts to unpack. First, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's literally what his name means. Melchi, righteousness, Zedek, king. So king of righteousness. And he's also king of Salem. Remember, in Genesis chapter 14, it says he's the king of Salem. And also the exegesis of Salem means peace, not just hello. Because when people used to say hello to each other, they would say shalom. And that's the same word as Salem. And so it's not just hello. He's not the king of hello. He's the king of peace. And he goes on in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning or of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He was the king of righteousness and peace. He was the priest of the Most High God, the same God as Abraham, El Elyon. He brought out wine and bread. What does that mean? Okay. So, first of all, he was the king of righteousness. He was the king of peace. He was a king of the good kind. He was a good king. Secondly, he was priest of the Most High God. That should have stood out to any Jewish reader reading Hebrews. Because we know in the Bible you can't be both king and priest. It just doesn't happen that way. In fact, Saul tried to do as a king priestly duties and he got cursed for it. You don't mingle those two. There's a separation between peace, separation, I'm sorry, between uh, kings and separation between priests. And then, not only that, was he both. He brought out bread and wine. You bring out bread and wine to who? To your friends. So this king of righteousness, this king of peace, the priest of the Most High God, brings out bread and wine, signifying friendship between him and Abraham. That's amazing. We don't even know who this guy is. He came out of nowhere. Never was he mentioned before in the Bible. Just comes out, he's like, you're my friend. And Abraham takes it. And then he gives him a tithe. But what's also important and notable in the Bible is verse 3. 
Anybody notable in history, in any history book too, especially in ancient days, you have a genealogy. I just told you. It's really important that you know where you're from because it tells you where you're going. It tells you who you are. So anybody notable in the Bible has a genealogy. You have no genealogy, probably not that important. And yet Melchizedek is not in that camp of not important. He's very important. But there's silence on his genealogy. What does that mean? There's a portion in Sherlock Holmes where he would say this is a curious incident and where he's drawing inferences, collecting data because he's this, you know, awesome detective. And he, go, he asks, did the dog bark at night? And it's like, actually, the dog didn't bark. And this is what Sherlock Holmes would say. That's a curious incident. You see, when he is gathering clues, it's not just the evidence that's there. He gathered clues with the evidence that should have been there, but isn't. The dog doesn't bark when it should have. That's a curious incident. Melchizedek is a great high priest of the Most High God. He's a great king of righteousness and peace. No genealogy. That's a curious incident. Because the absence of facts also gives us information. You see, he's going to go on to explain that Melchizedek's priesthood was not established upon external circumstances of birth. Then what was it established on? It was based on the call of God, not a hereditary process, which was the Levitical priesthood, which was what you probably understand, but it was based on the call of God. Which is interesting. The Levites didn't even exist yet anyway. So not only that, there's no record of his death or birth. There's no beginning or end to Melchizedek. And so the notion of eternity is prefigured in Melchizedek. But I would also add it's prefigured in Melchizedek but fulfilled in Christ. It's a perpetual priesthood. It never ended pointing to the eternal priesthood of Christ. That's what he starts with. Were you ready to handle that in the first three verses? I hope so, because he painstakingly prepared us to receive those three verses. Now he's going to move on to the importance or the momentousness of tithes, okay? From verse 4, see how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. If he wasn't great, and he was just a nobody, why in the world would Abraham give a tithe to this person? But he was indeed great. For Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish faith, of the Israel faith, would give tithes to them. In verse 5, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. How great was he? Well, he collected tithes. 
and he goes to explain what tithes are. We kind of have that similar tradition still today. I, I, I have lots of debates or, you know, just talks, you know, with people, some non-Christian, some Christians, some even pastors. And when pastors get together, I debate them sometimes or we discuss uh, tithing. And I'd always add that tithing was never abrogated. And tithing isn't a uh, mere mosaic law institution. It's not a mosaic institution. It was even before Moses, meaning Abraham would give tithes. And so this notion of tithes would have been understood. And it continues on today where you see that there is no priest, but the pastor would come and receive the tithes and then bring it back and they would pray. You wonder why you did that growing up church all the time? It's pointing back to tradition. It's pointing back to history. There's a reason why we do it. And so once you receive it, the priest would give the blessing, a.k.a. the benediction. And so we know that priests provide services. Without priests, who could you offer your sacrifices to? Because you needed a greater person to be an intermediary between you and God. And the priest would fulfill that role. And so that's why the priest would be greater than the person that would be giving the tithes. And so Abraham would give tithes to Melchizedek, so he must have been greater. And so this is what is mentioned here. This is about receiving tithes and understanding who you give tithes to and who the person that's receiving tithes represents. And we still have that here, so it shouldn't be completely unfamiliar. I am saddened when we hear things and talk and news about perhaps people in leadership that would abuse the tithes that are given to them, abuse financial authority that they have been given. There were people even like that in Old Testament times, and God severely punished them. And I have no doubt that God will also severely punish anyone who would collect tithes and then abuse that with their corruption. But what was meant to do was the Levites were meant to collect it, and the tenth of the tenth would go to the priest. The priest would also need to be fed and clothed, but they would also take care of the temple and things of that nature. And so this is applied to Melchizedek to understand that this is about the greatness of Melchizedek. This is not just some mere person that we're to ignore and skip over. So he's hammering this point, and Melchizedek isn't just a normal guy. Look at what's there, and look at what's absent. And secondly, when you look at the tithes, he must have been greater than Abraham, the great patriarch of the Israel faith, of the Hebrew faith, of the Jewish faith. He's the great patriarch, and there's someone greater than him. What does that mean, though? And that's where we go to our last point, and third and final point the importance of the Levites. And it's just two verses. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithe, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Hopefully this starts to make sense. Like what you do, what your parents did, what your grandparents did, what your children do, they're all tied together. We love to think that we're individualistic, 
I make my own decisions. Very Rousseauing in our, Rousseauing in our thinking that if I am corrupt, it's because the outside world is corrupting me, but I'm just really pure inside. No, 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 no. You've come from somewhere. And the personality that you have, even to the physical attributes that you have, came from somewhere. And this is how we can also understand this. We've lost a lot of that in our culture, and I get that. And people even now argue for a 100% inheritance tax, right? 100% inheritance taxes, if you die, then all of your assets just go to the government. And people are like, that should, we should do that, because if we have a 100% inheritance tax, then we could pay off a lot of the debt that we've incurred. We could feed the poor and the hungry. We could clothe them, and, you know, shelter those that are, you know, without houses. I think unhoused is the new word for it. But we could do all these things. 100% inheritance tax. Why haven't we done that yet? Well, economists, from, this is decades old, this, this kind of uh, argumentation. Economists realize that if you were to do this, you are incentivizing people just only to live in the now. If you knew that if you died, everything that you had, all your assets would just go away, why would you ever save? You would just spend it now. And then economists also realize, if you look at history, the reason why we are so rich today, the reason why we have so much affluence today, the reason why you have an iPhone in your hand is because of an inheritance. Because there was money passed down to you. There was knowledge passed down. People weren't just living for today. Inventions were created. Why? For your children. For your children's children. You wanted to save and build something that would last longer than yourself. If there was an inheritance tax, you would just spend it all now because who cares if you saved up? It would just disappear anyway because that's not how God created the world. God created the world where things get passed down to you and you could pass down to others. You know, when I was a kid, I heard this one quote by Martin Luther. And I really thought about it a lot. And the more I think about it, the more I really enjoy this quote. This is attributed to Martin Luther. And he would say, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would still plant my apple trees. If I knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, I would still plant my apple trees. What? Why? The world's going to end. Your apple tree has no significance whatsoever. We're just going to be uh, just a, a ball of fire, just burned up. We're gone. Just as a lot of people believe that in eternity past, there was nothing, 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 blip humans, and then nothing, nothing, nothing. That's what a lot of people believe. And if that's the case, why in the world would you plant an apple tree? But yet that's what he said. And I would always think about that. And I would meditate on that. And I think that's a really, really nice quote. It's one of, one of my favorite quotes that's attributed to Luther. There is a reason why, even if the world were to end, that you would plant your apple trees. I'm not going to tell you. You should think about it. <laughs> but there really is a significance to understanding inheritance and what that gets passed down to. And this is the importance of the Levites. What Abraham did eventually 
would go down to Levi, and Levi would then take care of the tithes, would take care of the priestly duties, would take care of the temple, would take care of the sacrifices, and it all pointed to something. It all pointed to something greater. I want to wrap it up by going back to the beginning. What do we long for? What do we long for? And if I ask you to write a list, what you long for, I wouldn't necessarily say all things are bad. I bet some of those things are good. You know, I want to take my mom out to a nice lunch. Great. Wonderful. You know, I want to buy a PS5. Medium. Mm, I don't know if that's that great. Might not be too good, depending on your financial situation, right? I could, I could probably assess. What do we long for? And it goes to the ultimate understanding is that what you long for is not just the good or goods, but what we really long for is the giver. Whether you're pointing back, whether you're pointing forward, whether you're looking back or you know you're walking forward, you're ultimately looking for the giver. And when we don't have the giver, that's why we feel empty. That's why there's abyss inside our hearts because it was created to be filled by God. And this is the importance of the Levites. And this story about the Levites is pointing to that. It pointed forward to the Levites. It pointed back to Abraham because ultimately, whether we point back or we point forward, we need the giver. There are trajectories that God put in place in the Bible. The trajectory of Melchizedek, he put that in place. Because who does Melchizedek or what does Melchizedek point to? What is the trajectory of Melchizedek? It points forward and brings you to Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ is our Savior. When we were separated by God, Jesus Christ is our Savior. You grew up in church, you understood that. But in what way? He's the King. He's our Savior by being the King, the King of righteousness, the King of peace. King of righteousness, He conquers. King of peace, He settles so that you're not in constant anxiety. It's settled. So he's king and conqueror. Now, if Jesus Christ was only king and conqueror, we should be shaking in our boots because we are placed and we have placed ourselves against God. All the things that we want now are things that are corrupt. Our desires are corrupt. It's selfish. We just want to satisfy our own selves. We don't look to God and we definitely don't look to our neighbors. We would be quivering in our shoes because everybody will eventually bow in submission to Christ the King and conqueror. This is a fact. This is established in His Word and it's made known to us when He was risen again from the dead. God would raise Him up and only Jesus Christ is on the right hand of God the Father seated in session ruling in eternity. But he's not only king, he is high priest together. It was undoable in the Mosaic law, 
But Melchizedek pointed to that Jesus Christ could not only be king, which he is, but he's also priest. If he's just king, we are in terror. But now we have a perfect mediator between God and humans because he is truly God and truly human. And he has brought us to God when there was no other way possible. Jesus is the way. He's the priest. That's the significance of Jesus Christ. That's what Melchizedek pointed to. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. He is Savior and Lord of us all. And that's why we can look at Melchizedek, we can meditate on him, and next week we'll go even further. The riches, we'll go, we'll go deeper into the riches of the Word of God and see how awesome, how glorious, how beautiful Jesus Christ is by seeing what God showed us first through Melchizedek. So praise be to God for Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator, our righteous King who brings peace to those that would trust in Him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this day that we can reflect on your word. We know that we are infallible, but we know we sit here or stand in front of you by receiving what is infallible. And we thank you that we can be corrected, that we can be admonished, that we can be even disciplined, but also encouraged and lifted up because of your grace and your love for your people. You call us as your people. We pray, God, that you would lead us now as king and high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's take this time to pray. And just as we have sung in many hymns, and we have heard from the songs that were sung as well, it's up to us now, as God has called you to, as the Holy Spirit convicts you, to offer up your lives in submission to him, to follow him all the days of your life, to take up your cross daily and follow our Lord Jesus Christ. For his path is good. His yoke is light. And he saves those that call upon his name. Let's pray.